the lights look nice. And I, I fully appreciate people that do things well and make things look nice, like these wonderful decorations, uh, things that sound nice for uh, you guys leading us in worship. You do it so well. And to be able to be drawn into that and uh, worship along with you, I, I appreciate it. And thank you for putting in the energy and the effort that you do for that. Uh, I love it. I'm so grateful for that, for people that are good at different things than, uh, than those beside us as well. Who of you are, uh, would, would, would call yourselves like very much like, I don't even know how to word this, pro-Christmas, like lovers of Christmas. Let me say that. Like, like when the music, like your music's on early, decorate as early as you can. Like there's not that many of you. I figure like those that are, are bold enough to really put their hand up high. And, <laughs> and then there's some, I don't even want to ask you because you don't want to raise your hand for being a bit of a Grinch, but uh, I know that there's others on the other side. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was wonderful. <laughs> there's some that, you know, let's just... 24th, 25th, let's cap it. Let's keep it tight. We don't need to do anything too ridiculous. Let's not sing wonderful songs about our Lord and Savior. <laughs> the thing that I love is that it's, it's everywhere. Christmas is everywhere. It's around the world. People celebrate. You, you, were, you were around the world just recently, Kenzie, and you love Christmas. Was Christmas on the other side of the ocean? It's on the other side of the ocean. Look at that. We can, we can testify to that. The fact that there's something so remarkable that affects the way the world is, uh, is, comes together for something like this, and the way that we have time even, and how we measure time. That there were some monks that decided, like, let's start from zero, and they carry on from zero, and we call that A.D., from when Christ was born, and they got the calculation wrong, but that's all right. Uh, it's pretty close, and we carry on time like that as well. How fantastic is that? You can change the meaning of it however you want, but that's why it, uh, we start time from there, why we count those years, because of Jesus, because God became a human, became a baby, and came into our world, and the world celebrates that and pauses, and some don't even know why that pause exists, but that's why we do this. I just love that story. I really do love stories. I love when people can share a good story of, you never believe what happened. I love that opening. Love to hear a story from something like that. I love hearing stories over and over. Some ones, you know, they can get a little bit old, but for the most part, it's like, tell it to me again. It's a good story. Love hearing stories. I love watching a story, watching a TV show, a good TV show, watch terrible ones as well. Uh, sometimes you put up with those because it's a story. To be able to see a story played out on a screen, to see a story played out with people on a stage, to see a story uh, or to read a story in a book as well. I just really love stories. I don't know if that's uh, unique to just me. I'm sure there's others that love stories as well. I think there's a little bit of something into the way that we're wired as humans to kind of stories resonate with us. But there's something about uh, being able to do a story well. You can get into a story and like be drawn along. So you can have a, a terrible starting and be like, okay, you know, I'll give them a few episodes. I'll give them a couple chapters and see if it draws me in. And some are a little bit harder to get into, uh, but someone might have encouraged you already of like, you, you just got to get to this point and, and you'll, you'll be sucked in. It'll be good. Like carry on. And so sometimes we'll put up with a pretty terrible beginning to get into something that will be a good story eventually. 
but something about a good beginning that, uh, that sits with us. Things that we might remember, or when we come back to that story again, they kind of draw us in a second time because we know what's coming. It's that primer that starts us off. And so I was thinking through some of that this week too, and thinking about uh, some of the beginnings that we see around us. Some of the beginnings that we see around us are even wrapped up in the storylines that aren't just like a written story or a visual story. But their storylines through sports is the perfect example because every season, it's brand new, right? How's the story going to unfold? It's a new season, fresh starts, like this could be the year. And there's some people that have been cheering that for their team year after year after year after year. And, and that's, but we, you keep on, right? You keep on because this year might be different. See what it's going to start with. And some of those storylines are fun to see as like, uh, someone that got traded to a different team or something like that. Like, oh, how are they going to fit in? What's the storyline going to look like? People that come into drafted in new, we're all waiting. What's the Bedard storyline going to look like, right? At the beginning, was, is, he as, is he as good as they say he's going to be? He's been showing himself pretty good already. See what the storyline looks like. Because we can look down the road at other people that have started those storylines. Sidney Crosby or Ovechkin when they came in and McDavid and, and other ones that don't remember their names because they didn't quite pan out as everyone anticipated they might have. So sports is a great example of seeing where these storylines pan out. I, I do want to give just a bit of a nod as well to a sports storyline to you varsity guys that were out playing in Fisher River. Uh, sucks to come home with like a loss at the end, but like fourth place in provincials, that's, a, that's, that's amazing. Like congrats guys, good job. You did an awesome job out there. And I want to guess and assume that the storyline was this is the year. And, uh, and, you know, you carried that through, and I hope you had fun along with it. Because if you didn't, then eh, storyline feels like it's not quite worth it. But I, I trust that you guys did have fun together there as well. So sports shows those, show those things to us as well. There's a few uh, openings that I think of uh, for, for TVs and movies that uh, just... I, sometimes I don't even know why they stick in my mind or why I should have an idea of what they are, but I'm curious if they land for you at all. So let me give you a couple examples uh, of just some openings to a couple TV shows, and they're, they're kind of old, but uh, there's one does, this one, does this one land for you? Do you know what this is from? There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling the transmission. Do you know what show that's from? Twilight Zone. See, that's what I thought as well. It's the Outer Limits, actually. So I, I was with you. I'm glad that uh, we're collectively ignorant. Um, <laughs> but similar notion, kind of that sci-fi sort of show. And like that show is way older I've, than I knew. I have no idea why I know that. It makes no sense. Uh, but anyways, that one's often stuck with me. Another one that's a little bit older as well, too. But it starts off with, here's the story of a lovely lady. And you know that one as well from the Brady Bunch, right? And... Uh, it's funny how we can hear that opening line, and we can kind of jump already to some of the pieces we know in it. You can hear the opening ditty to a TV show, and you know already, like, oh, yeah, this line, that piece, the part that you enjoy. There's one as well, which I'm fond of, that uh, has some emotion attached to it. When you, when you see, usually it's with music, but then you read as well. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, however you read that into your own uh, in your own inter internal narrator for the Star Wars saga. And that brings out the things you start to think of. You know where the story's going to go. But that's a good beginning, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. 
There's some book lines that are openings that are absolutely spectacular. Some that I, I don't care about as much, but I get it, and, uh, and I think they, they, it is a good opening as well. But I want to I share a couple with these, because I think these are, these are really good. Uh, one that maybe just fits for right now is, every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but Crystal and Mark, they did not. No. <laughs> <laughs> But we know that to be from the Grinch who stole Christmas. Actually, that's not even the name, isn't it? It's how the Grinch stole Christmas. Yeah. So that one we get. We know the opening to that one. Uh, see if you, do you know this one? It's, it's kind of in the name, so you might. In, the, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And uh, it had been after I had finished Bible college, so four years of reading books that were imposed upon me to learn, and uh, some of those books are pretty heavy in content. They take a bit of focus and trying to read can be difficult in some of those. And so after that, I was like, well, I want to read a book I want to read. I want to read some fiction. And I uh, had read before The Hobbit. I'm a fan of that, uh, that series of J.R.R. Tolkien. And just that opening line, I remember just reading just in, the, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And I was just like, oh, this is going to be a good story. I knew the story, but it just kind of draws you in. This is a good story. Uh, here's another one that, again, maybe a, you recognize the beginning, but maybe not the rest of the book. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, uh, which it carries on from there, but there's a tale of two cities. Here's one. <laughs> it's a funny opening line. Uh, can't say I care for the rest of the story, but it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Does anyone know what that one's from? Pride and Prejudice. One more let me give you, because this one is absolutely spectacular, and I've been chuckling about it all week. <laughs> there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> Isn't that a great way to start off a story? Uh, and that one's from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is part of the, the Narnia series by C.S.S. Lewis. C that doesn't sound right, C.S.S. J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis. Uh, once you get to the point of being able to refer to your first initials in your last name, you know you've kind of made it in life. Uh, so I had a, a friend in college that tried to do that. Start calling me this, because like G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, these guys are all really impressive. So if you call me the same way, it'll follow, right? What about this one? In the beginning. Where do you go with that one? Do you know there's actually a couple places you can go with that one? For most of us, or let me ask you then, how many had in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Is that kind of where your mind goes with that? And see, and that's what, that's what John knew would happen. And so John drew a beautiful connection in order to show, in order to sort of hijack that line as well. And so at the beginning of the Gospel of John, he took that. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were created. Without him, nothing was created that was created. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Isn't that a fantastic opening paragraph? It just sets it up and makes this connection to what was at the beginning, and it sets up this something good is coming after this. And if you read that, and I can't imagine what it would be like to read it for the first time, because however old I was when I read it, I probably didn't appreciate it, so I can't come into that with the first time. But I'm always drawn in when I get to read that one again. In the beginning was the Word. 
And the word was with God, and the word was God. And we just know that something fantastic is coming after. And even just to look at that one, if you flip there in uh, John chapter 1, he has this, this that, and it's kind of a very philosophical opening. And then he comes into verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he carries on to talk about John the Baptist in here. How fun of an opening is that? It's the beginning of something. And we know that with a good story, as the beginning carries on, there's story, and then there's the climax, and then the falling action. We know these things as parts of stories. The beginning is not the climax. And in the, in the Advent story, we're, we're looking forward to the beginning, the beginning of Jesus coming. And it's, it's a beginning, uh, but it's also not the climax. It's also not the cross, where Jesus fulfills all that he came to earth to do. So at the beginning, it's a really good beginning, but it also wraps up a whole bunch of history before it because John chooses to start with in the beginning, which for a reader in that Jewish time that would have understood the Torah and the old, what we have as the Old Testament, it would have brought up all these emotions of like, oh, this is going back to the beginning. Jesus is God setting up that divinity but also, for those that know the story, it kind of draws you into knowing the other pieces of the story. It kind of brings you along in the journey of what happened after in the beginning, after Adam and Eve, and after Noah. And the story carries on through, uh, through I want to draw us to a certain part of that story, but it brings us along from Adam and, uh, and Noah and then Abraham, where God is going to start working through a family here now, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob has these sons, and uh, Joseph being one of those sons ends up bringing all the Israelites into Egypt. And from Egypt, we have the story of Moses. And out of Moses, we have them with Joshua conquering the land and being able to come into a land of their own. And then in the land, they're able to have these judges. And we have those stories of Samson and Gideon and Deborah. And then we have uh, kings where the people decide we want a king. King Saul is their first king. And he is not that amazing. And so King David is the one who follows. Now, King David... Was, uh, was from the tribe, the line, the family of Judah. See, uh, Jacob had these 12 sons, and they were the ones that made up the nation, the different tribes of Israel. And so Judah was one that was, uh, was promised that they weren't the oldest, that uh, the right of the oldest one had been passed down to Judah because uh, of mistakes of errors that the older, one, older brothers had already made. So through the tribe of Judah, David comes on the scene. And David... Is, uh, is a good king. He follows after God. He makes mistakes, but he's willing to recognize he made his mistake, to repent, to make things right as he can, to turn back to God. He had a heart after God, not because of his ability to behave really well, but his ability to recognize when he had done wrong and move on from that to move forward. So there was a promise to King David in 2 Samuel that there would always be someone from his lineage, someone from his family, on the throne. There'd always be a king from the line of David. And so this promise is given to David, and then you, you'd be able to trace that there are kings. The, the kingdom splits of Israel. We have Israel in the north, and then Judah in the south. And so this southern kingdom of Judah always has a king that's connected to David. So what about if that line were to get to cut off, though? What would happen in that case? Well, let me tell you a story about a boy named Joash. No, <laughs> uh, he, I don't know if he had siblings. Oh, he did. They were gone. So we're going to look at a story 
of a boy named Joash, of where it looked like this kingdom, this promise to David, would have looked to the common person like it had ended. The story, the, the lineage, the kingly line was cut off. So in 1 Kings, uh, no, 2 Kings probably, yeah, 2 Kings chapter 11 is where we're going to read this story. So we see where we've come from. Uh, the nation is where it is, uh, separate north and south. The northern kingdom of Israel, they basically had like terrible kings all the way through. That's why they went off into exile quicker, because uh, they just did not follow God. And so in about 722-ish, they, uh, before Jesus' time, they went off into exile. The Assyrians dragged them off. Uh, so before that point, though, we have this story of Joash, which is uh, in the southern kingdom of Judah, who had some good kings. So chapter 11, verse 1. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, these are some wild names in here. I get it. They're hard to pronounce. I assume I'm pronouncing them close, but I don't know that for certain. So uh, just power through with me, and hopefully they stick in your mind a little bit. I'll give you a, a bit of a, a diagram in a little while of helping draw them together. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family. Isn't that a great opening line? Man, this is not a nice person. But this was the time of kings, and this was kind of how they proceeded in the, in the world around them. So just with a, a little bit of context here, Athaliah, she was not from this line of Judah. She was not one of these ones from this kingly line of Judah. She was actually, uh, her parents were Ahab and Jezebel. If you recognize those names, bad news, uh, not good for God's people. And they were from the northern kingdom of Israel. So she was a daughter of the northern kingdom and married into the southern kingdom, political marriages, all those good things. I'm sure none of you are subject to any of that. And then in the southern kingdom was Ahaziah, who was uh, from this kingly line of David and was a king. Uh, you can read his story a, little, a couple chapters earlier of how he died. I think it's chapter 9. Uh, somewhere through there. You can follow that up at a later time. But this is where we jump ahead to where Athaliah is uh, the mother of Ahaziah, and Ahaziah dies. And so then she proceeds to destroy the whole royal family, trying to secure power for herself. But what it would look like, but what about David? But what about this promise that there'll be a king from the line of David? Let's read on. Verse 2. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram, and sister of Ahaziah, Ahaziah was the king that just died, she took Joash, son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered. She put him and his nurse in a bedroom to hide him from Athaliah, so he was not killed. He remained hidden with his nurse at the temple of the Lord for six years while Athaliah ruled the land. So one little guy, one little one-year-old, Little Joash, his aunt steals him away from the doom that is coming, hides him in the temple. Him, his nurse, and uh, we find out later, or we, we realize later that Jeho Jehoshaphat, her husband was Jehoiada, who was the priest. So there's this little cluster of people that know that this son, Joash, is still alive. While the rest of Judah, if they had on the back of their mind, what about the line of David. What about the kingly line of David? It looks like it's been cut off. It looks like the promise to God, that God gave meant nothing. So for six whole years, this is what it would have looked like for the land of Judah. As Athaliah took over the throne, uh, 
and apparently had killed all of the descendants of those from the line of Judah who could have been a king at that point. So there's a lot of characters going on here. Let me, uh, I decided to map this out a little bit with a bit of a family tree to help you grasp who these people are. So we have a, a family tree here with Joash in the bottom corner. He's the one we're focusing on. He's the one that's most important to this story. Uh, Joash's dad, Ahaziah, he was the king that died. We're not actually told who Joash's mom is, uh, but that she, was, she would have been there. Uh, so we can see going up, though, Ahaziah's parents were Jehoram, who was a king, and Athaliah, she was this one from Israel who came in uh, as a political marriage, her parents being Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, so the other one, the other character we've seen here was Jehoshaphat. She's the aunt, the aunt who took Joash and hid him in the temple. So she is an aunt through Jehoram. We don't actually, we're not actually really told or certain who her mother would be, but given uh, kings and stuff like that, it's a good chance her mother was not Athaliah. Uh, and so she ends up, she is married to Jehoiada, who is a priest, and that's why, you know, have a priest, have space in the temple, and that's where they raise the king with the nurse. So we have Jehoiada, Jehoshaphat, Joash, say those three times quickly, and their nurse all gathered together, uh, and you can imagine there'd be a couple other people wondering, like, who's this baby that's being raised in the temple? Uh, but they know what's going on. They know that this is one from the kingly line. So for six years, they know that, but no one else. From an outsider perspective, it looks like, it looks like uh, the kingly line is gone. Hope is vanishing or appears to have vanished. But God knows. He's not ignorant of what's going on. He is faithful to his promises. And so when it looks like it's hopeless, God is not anxious. Six years would have seemed like a long time for some. For us, sometimes six years can seem like a very long time, depending on what we're going through. In the grand scope of God working with humanity throughout history, six years is hardly anything at all. And so God is not anxious. He sees the whole picture, and he's working to renew hope. And now, the rest of the story is played out from verse 4 all the way through the end. I'm not going to, I'm going to summarize it for you. They, uh, when, after six years, Joash is seven years old now. And so they bring him out with a ceremony that Jehoiada sort of organizes to present him, to coronate him as the true king. So they do this in the, in the temple. They bring him out. Athaliah finds out about it. So she comes in in a rage, remembering that like she's the usurper here. She's the one that does not belong in power. So she comes in a rage. They, uh, they catch her before she can get into the proceedings too far. She is removed from the temple and killed. And Joash is made king. So the story carries out that Joash is kind of a meh sort of king in the, the whole grand scope of things. He started off really well, but like give the guy some credit. He was seven years old, so hard to be king when you're seven. He had some good advisors earlier on in uh, Jehoiada and some others. And then later on, his advisors were the ones that actually killed him. So uh, be careful who you put around you. But uh, he was a king for 40 years in Judah. And uh, he did what was kind of okay, kind of come see, come saw, is where he ended up as a king. There were ones that followed him later on that were even better in following after God than he was. So the line of Judah continues and marches on. Kings come, kings go. Israel goes off into exile. Kings come, kings go. Judah goes off into exile. Empires grow. Empires take over other empires. And uh, people come back from exile and start to rebuild 
in Jerusalem, rebuild in Israel. And a, a nation of Israel is different than what it was before, but they are there now, this Jewish people. The, the Jews have established themselves somewhat, but then as empires come and go and empires take over other empires, we come into this time of Rome taking over, and, and the Jews have their spot, their spot uh, carved out in, uh, in and around Jerusalem, in and around the, the country, the nation that they were given. And I don't know if you've ever actually connected this as an aside. Like Jews, like Jews comes from Judah. That's, that's why they're, they associate mostly with the tribe of Judah. Uh, so Jew, Judah, you can kind of see how that lands together. So the Jewish people in the time uh, when Rome is in control now, you can imagine the time, it's like hundreds of years have gone by. And as prophets come, they start talking about through the stump of Jesse, through the, this being the kingly line of David, a Messiah is going to come. So they're waiting. They're waiting for a Messiah to come. They're waiting for someone who's going to be king and lord, and they have their idea of what that should be and should look like, but they're waiting for the Messiah. And hundreds of years go by, and they're waiting. So you can kind of imagine how hope seems like it's vanishing, how it looks like a hopeless situation. And when it looks hopeless... God is not. God is not anxious. He is waiting. And then Zechariah gets an angel visit. And then Mary gets an angel visit. Months go by. Jesus is born. There's a choir of angels. Shepherds get to see him. And he grows. Hope has come. Hope has a new beginning. And you know the story well. But let me draw you to a certain part of this story, to some who were waiting. And it is so fantastic to see the example in how they respond when they see this hope realized. So turn, turn to Luke chapter 2 uh, with me. And so just skipping past this birth of Jesus part, because we're, we're pretty familiar with that. Uh, if we're not, you can go read the first part of Luke chapter 2. And we have this part in the, the later part of, of uh, Luke chapter 2 where we have a couple characters, a couple people who, like many of the Jews, have been waiting for a Messiah to come. And I love that their story is included in Scripture here because I'm sure many were waiting and we get their part of their waiting. So Luke chapter 2, verse 22. To give a little bit of background there. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves and two young pigeons. Now here we go. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. How unique a situation for this. The nation has been waiting for the Messiah for years and centuries, and this guy, devout and righteous, and God reveals to him, you're going to get to see him. So verse 27, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, 
Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. He knew that this was the Lord's Messiah. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And that always gets me. They knew he was the Messiah, right? Like this wasn't a normal pregnancy. And even about that, they marveled what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So we have Simeon, who, like so many other Jews, I imagine there was many other devout and righteous Jews before him, maybe during his time as well, that were waiting for a Messiah. It might have looked hopeless, but God was not anxious And God chooses Simeon to reveal to him, you're going to get to see the Messiah. And he does. He blesses him. But there's another person as well, as we continue. Verse 36. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. So these two, Simeon and Anna, what a privilege that they get to see the Messiah has come. As the Israelites were waiting for years and decades and centuries, maybe for some it looked like hope was gone. That there was and makes me think that he must have had some characteristics of Anna, who's mentioned there as well, who worshipped God in the temple day after day, patiently waiting for God to do the work that he is going to do. Because when it looks hopeless, God is not anxious. Have you ever been in a situation that, uh, that seemed hopeless? Or maybe you are in one right now. What are you hoping for? If you could write the first sentence to this next chapter, this beginning of what you're hoping for, what would that sentence be? How would you start the story knowing that you're hoping for something down the road? Knowing that it might look hopeless right now, I can assure you God is not anxious. So what would be the opening line for you? Perhaps it would be something like, the phone rang, and this time there was good news from the doctor's report. With heart pounding, she told her neighbor about her hope in Jesus. Maybe it would be something like, instead of criticism, he greeted them with an encouragement and a hug. Maybe something like, for the first time in a long time, they haven't had an evening at home with the family. Or perhaps in an attempt to begin fresh, He apologized. She forgave. Or maybe, though they had heard it a hundred times before, for the first time, they understood the true hope is found only in Jesus. There's a lot of situations represented by this large of a group of people. Some of them are pretty difficult. And we don't know what's going on in some of these situations and we don't know how they're going to turn out and boy it can feel hopeless sometimes 
But when it looks hopeless, God is not anxious. He sees the outcome. He's working. He's patiently carrying out his work, inviting us into the part we have to play when it is ours to play. But I invite you into that, where God's at in this, that he's not anxious. So trust in him, because he's the one that sees it all. He sees how it's going to turn out, and he's got you. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we, we have stories that we can see how you carried out hope. When it looked hopeless, you did something remarkable. And we know that not every story turns out that way, but we know that you're not anxious in any of those stories. We want to put our trust in you to be able to have some of that in our lives as well, not being anxious about the outcome, trusting you for today. We think that our ultimate hope is through you, Jesus, and you have come, and you have given us the way to be forgiven of our sins, to have relationship with you. Thank you that you give us that hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, yeah.